what does it look like for wealth to be passed down from parent to child, right? Like, we know we have a history of redlining in the United States, and not just a history, but a continuing legacy of redlining and discrimination in the housing market. We also know that housing is one of the most valuable assets someone can own in terms of passing on their wealth to their children. So how are these things contributing to the racial wealth gap that we see in America, right? Like, at some point, it's not, it goes beyond just individual agency. Um, A lot of people like to mark it down to stereotypes and just quite frankly, be racist and say, well, you know, black people don't have as much money because they don't work as hard and really lick the boot of meritocracy, which (laughs) I I have a really hard time with. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with third-year MMT activist Hannah Judson. Hannah was introduced to MMT at a local community college in 2017. Her professor was BJ Untai, who introduced both mainstream and MMT concepts and let the class decide for themselves which theory was more convincing. She later discovered that Untai was a student of Stephanie Kelton. Hannah received a decidedly non-MMT undergraduate degree in business from DePaul University in Chicago. In September of 2019, she impulsively flew out to Long Island, New York in order to attend the MMT conference at Stony Brook University. Despite knowing no one, she ended up being selected as a last-minute replacement to moderate a conference panel. She and her husband now share an apartment with MMTer Nathan Tenkis in Queens, New York, and she has just begun an MMT-informed sociology PhD program at Stony Brook. Her hope is to further expand the interdisciplinary reach of the MMT project, which currently centers around law. Her primary interest, however, is the racial wealth divide in the United States, and more broadly, stratification and inequality stratification being the decisions and actions that cause and result in inequality. Hannah describes how she got here from there, through a Zoom wedding in her home state of Washington, Zoom church in Chicago, and 11,000 miles of driving from Washington to New York to Washington to New York in order to attend a Zoom PhD. In part two, we drastically switch subjects to mental illness and anxiety, 
and how they are seen through and informed by MMT. Hannah and I both endured traumatic experiences in our childhoods, which will remain with us for the rest of our lives. She discusses how she came to terms with this, how she manages it today, and how her Christianity influences her anxieties as well as her politics. I end by sharing my own story, which I will say more about in the introduction to part two. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll get exclusive content and updates, several days of early access to every episode, and for some, super early access, weeks and sometimes even months in advance. You can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. Now, on to my conversation with Hannah Judson. I've produced a couple of podcasts at this point, so very familiar with the back end and the editing process and all of that stuff. Really? What have you, what uh, podcast have you been involved with? So my latest project was uh, working at DePaul University. I was a marketing specialist for the finance department and we produced a podcast called Stuff You Should Know About Finance. Really? Which was just interviewing professors, industry professionals, practitioners, that kind of thing. And I was a co-host on one episode, but I primarily did the, you know, the after, all of the editing and the, you know, getting everything cut correctly and making everyone sound smart. (laughs) Wow. Did you, like, I'm in the, you know, I I mean, all I do is edit. (laughs) Um, how, how, uh, How much time does it take you to, like, edit I guess an hour episode I guess or hour long like how Um, long does it how many times do you have to listen to it yeah we shot for like 45 minutes as sort of our like runtime so I would listen through it once to do sort of the big edits like cutting out sentences or you know sort of like if someone got off topic that kind of thing and then I would send it for sort of general approval from my manager and then I would go through and do the removing all the ums and ahs and uh, breathing pauses that kind of thing and usually that was enough to sort of get through like the majority of the the edits and then if I needed to I would go back a third time to add in you know the introduction the host talking about what that episode was about which we usually did separately um, or that kind of thing so i two maybe three times usually wow (laughs) well good for you that's that's really what uh what tool did you use to actually Um, edit audition i am unfortunately a slave to the adobe pay for software scheme so i Mm. was doing everything in audition so was this mmt aware you said finance Oh, God. <laughs> oh. Uh, I really wish that it was. Um, no, I 
was, so I just finished my business degree. And I, when I first got the job, I wasn't, had no inkling of going to grad school for anything. Um, was not planning on doing anything besides potentially going into marketing or something like that. And so that's why I took this marketing job for the finance department, because I was like, oh, this is, you know, helps my career aspects or whatever. Okay. And I had a really hard time, well, with business school in general, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. But specifically talking to professors, I mean, these are people who have worked on Wall Street, who have, they're not academics. DePaul, the business school at DePaul is really shifting towards hiring industry practitioners instead of like people who went to school to be teachers. So the majority of the professors in a lot of the departments, especially the finance department, were actually just people who've managed hedge funds and sort of like mm. done done the work, I guess. But that meant, you know, they were very, very aware of the sort of like, I don't know, I guess I would, I would say they are the stereotypical like finance bros, like very much any understanding they have of economics is is primarily from the neoclassical point of view. Like, I had some success talking to people my own age about like, hey, like this is why a federal jobs guarantee makes sense. And look at like even in your even in your framework, like this is just the right thing to do. But never had much success in those conversations with professors or anyone over the age of 25 really were you involved in this podcast after you already knew mmt pretty well no so my i guess the segues kind of nicely into my mmt journey as a whole um (laughs) i started business school before i was finished with high school actually i did a um a program in Washington state that was called running start where I signed up to take college credits, uh, in high school. And so I was not on my high school campus anymore. I was just a full-time college student, which was really great for me. Um, and allowed me to save a lot of money on my undergrad, um, by finishing basically an associate's degree at a community college and then transfer into a larger school. But I had not really learned a whole lot about, economics in general. It was never like a requirement at the high school level. It was not something, it was only after I figured out that I was like, oh, business is fine. Like, I I don't necessarily enjoy it, but I don't hate it. And I can be successful enough to make money when I'm done, which is all that matters. Um, and then I took a macroeconomics class at my community college, which was taught by BJ Untai, who was at the time ABD through UMKC's IPHD program. Um, and he was looking at sustainability and degrowth, looking at sort of that intersection of economics and natural science, I guess. I don't, I'm not really sure what category I would put it, but he was a student of Stephanie's and he's the one who introduced me to MMT um well and my whole class I guess 
And so I was intrigued. I was like very interested. It was sort of my first introduction to macro and he took us through, we basically started by sort of learning all of the neoclassical models and went through sort of the base assumptions, what, you know, where do these theories come from? Where do these models come from? And then he said, okay, so now forget everything that you just learned. Here's a different framework for thinking about these things. And then he let us sort of look at the world around us and figure out what made more sense. And to me, watching the news and just looking at the way that people interact with the economy, like MMT just made more sense. And so from then on, it sort of was just there in the back of my mind. I didn't really do anything with it. I transferred. What year is this around? This is, oh God, probably 2017. Wow. Okay. So post Trump election, pre Mm -hmm. the world being on fire all the time, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps that was just my level of political consciousness at the time. But, um, yeah, I transferred to DePaul into their business program. I knew about MMT, but I wasn't like actively advocating for it. It was just something I was sort of like, oh yeah, that's a thing that people think and that's cool. And it's good to stay connected to like the people who are talking about it, but I wasn't really like connected to the community super well. And mm-hmm. so last year, 2019, I decided that I should go to the MMT conference. I was in Chicago, it was being held on Long Island out at Stony Brook University. And I was like, this is my chance. Like, I'll just go. I might not know anyone there, but I've always been pretty decent at networking and just talking to people. I'm so sure you actually went totally by yourself? <laughs> so I just went totally by myself. Um, wow. I flew out. I took the Long Island Railroad up to Stony Brook. I rented an Airbnb and just sort of was there for the weekend. And it was such an amazing experience. I really got connected and plugged into the MMT community obviously i'm here uh so that's (laughs) one of the one of the connections that i made but um i'm living with nathan tankus like uh (laughs) yeah we just moved into an apartment together in new york so wow (laughs) uh, totally like random stuff uh and i'm now going to grad school at stony brook because i applied to their sociology program and they accepted me Mm, so now i'm doing my my doctorate over there. So I, you know, totally crazy, like random decision that led to so many things that are happening in my life right now, which I, I would not I'm trade actually, the world. I'm actually surprised. I, I assumed, I just assumed Stony Brook MNT that you were going for an economics degree, or maybe yeah. this is like the interdisciplinary version, like the beginning of that. Yeah, so I thought really hard about what I, what kind of programs I wanted to apply to. I did apply to UMKC's interdisciplinary PhD, and because of corona and pandemic stuff, I, I never heard back, and I assume that that's just because their small department is very busy with lots of other things going on, but wow. um, I considered doing an econ degree. And then I realized that like, I'm actually more interested in the social process behind economic structures than 
the structures themselves. And I'm, I'm still trying to find a good way to articulate that. So let me know if that makes any sense. But uh, Okay, so yeah. So what does that mean, the social aspects more than the economic aspects? That's not how you said it, but can you yeah, elaborate on no, that? Yeah, no, totally. So um, I spent a lot of time developing a research project that I just presented at ASA, um, looking at the nature of intergenerational wealth transfer and how that impacts the racial wealth gap. I realized what I'm really interested in is actually inequality and stratification and looking at racial divides in the United States of wealth. Reparations and land redistribution is something that I've been interested in for a long time. Pause for a second while this train goes by. So that's the train? Oh yeah. Oh, okay, okay. That makes sense now. <laughs> Love it. Morning <laughs> and night, 24 uh. hours. Oh yeah, now I'm remembering you said noise-canceling headphones, now that I remember you're saying that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So, yeah, I've always been really interested in inequality as a whole, and then I took a Native American religion and spirituality class at DePaul, and that really was super interesting to me. I knew, obviously, the the whitewashed history version of what happened to Native Americans in the U.S. But understanding more about people's culture and religion and spirituality and how closely that is tied to the land that they're on really had me thinking a lot about land redistribution. Like, what would it look like logistically? What would it mean to return land to the people who were here, you know, 200 years later, we've built all this infrastructure. And I say we, and I mean, not white people, like we didn't, <laughs> like slaves built a lot of the infrastructure that we now use. And the White House, they built the White House. Literally. And so what would that look like to, to truly achieve racial justice, I don't think that there's a way to do that without addressing economic concerns. And so that was sort of where the intersection lay for me was was looking at, here's this inequality that we see, here's how it's caused by and impacted by economics. What do we do in the economics realm to fix the inequality. So for me, it wasn't about like creating new economic theory or, or looking at the impact of specific policies on GDP. Like I'm not so much interested in what it seemed like current economists were interested in. I'm, I really care more about the sociological aspect of that. And what does it look like for wealth to be passed down from parent to child, right? Like we know we have a history of redlining in the United States and not just a history, but a continuing legacy of redlining and discrimination in the housing market. We also know that housing is one of the most valuable assets someone can own in terms of 
passing on their wealth to their children. So how are these things contributing to the racial wealth gap that we see in America, right? Like, at some point, it's not, it goes beyond just individual agency. Um, A lot of people like to mark it down to stereotypes and just quite frankly, be racist and say, well, you know, black people don't have as much money because they don't work as hard and really lick the boot of meritocracy, which (laughs) I, I have a really hard time with. And I think. Yeah. I liked your, your, your post, your recent post about like cops are great or something like that. It was a website that said cops are great, but when you go to it, but when you go to it, (laughs) I won't even say, I'll put a link in the description if you send it to me. (laughs) much appreciated yeah the url i think is um why blue lives matter or something stupid Uh, like that and essentially when you click on it you know it says they don't um and in in a very special way in a very yeah in a very special way and (laughs) um so yeah so i'm really interested in sort of this the process the social reproduction of class um what this wealth transfer looks like and that sort of thing and using MMT has given me a great framework for thinking about these things. Like I've really, what's been stuck in my head for the last probably six months is, you know, poverty is a policy choice. Like we're, it's not that we're incapable of fixing these problems. Like we have all of the mechanisms, we have the levers and the tools and, you know, everything we need we are just choosing not to. And obviously there's a lot of electoral politics in the United States is already a mess and not fixed easily, but every choice that lawmakers make, you know, operating out of this zero sum sort of like fixed mindset of, oh, well, you know, the money has to come from somewhere. All it does is hurt people. And also it's not true. So that's where I'm at right now. Um, um, yeah. well, uh, okay. Okay. Uh, a, a few, just a few comments. And then I have a, two questions for you. Number one is, um, I had, I, you know, Ryan Mathis. I know, you know, Ryan Mathis. Yes. Yeah. Um, I had a wonderful interview with him where he introduced the idea to me of how whatever land that you live on or property that you own or, you know, capital that you own, how did you get it? And even if you aren't a horrible person, what's the history of how that land came to be in your hands? You know, so like, so, and since it is very likely that a lot of people suffered in order for that land to come to the current ownership, then what right do you have to say that you own that land? And he's, he's the person that introduced that concept to me. And I just did another interview, which is not released yet. I just recorded it with someone named Jane Ball on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Watt, Watt Tyler rising. And he introduced the idea that zoning, it has been a tool to, so Ryan taught me the history of that. And okay. what Jane said was that zoning, current zoning law is an active tool to perpetuate racism. Mm-hmm. And I, I never knew that. Like, mm-hmm. like the country, like the suburbs and single family homes, large single family homes was an active attempt very early on by our society to, to make it very difficult, you know, to put white people in nice areas and to exclude mm-hmm. black people pretty much. Mm-hmm. And then the, then the third one is racial taxation. Uh, the book racial taxation, which is 
just amazing. And that was that property taxes fund to local schools, which is started yeah. in, re- in reconstruction, which keeps black people out of school boards, which means that they have no choice of even how many tax, how much percentage taxes they should pay, then mm-hmm. which means that they can't get a good education, which means that they have less likely of getting land and so on. So like you're, you, that is like a sprawling topic of yes. land ownership and stuff. Um, so the, I have a question for you, which is, can you, well, two questions. You can answer them. You can answer them however you like. Number one is, can you describe stratification versus in- inequality? And number two, uh, how do you see uh, your, you know, when, you know, in your career of the relationship that you're going to have to MMT? Yeah, I will do both of things. You might have to remind me what your second question was in between because my sure. brain holds on to one thing at a time. <laughs> Mine too, but I also wrote it down, so I won't you know (laughs) incredible that's good that's good preparation Um, so stratification specifically in the social sciences um social stratification specifically it's this idea that people are divided into hierarchies where some people have more power than others and you think of power can be lots of different kinds of things in social settings, you know, so for example, I recently started grad school. There's a lot of what some people call like the hidden curriculum of grad school. It's you get socialized into following these rules that you might not even be able to articulate, but you know that they're there. And a lot of grad students who come from parents of like whose parents are academics already sort of know that or already have been sort of socialized into that. So in the framework of stratification, you could say when it comes to grad school, they have more power than those who are coming in from a background of not super heavy academics or academia. But other things are like class, gender, race, age, like all of the things that we think about are all linked to sort of different levels of power or are deemed more or less important than others. Um, Whereas inequality, to me, I think of inequality as the sort of outcome. It's almost like stratification is the Mm. input. It's the, Mm. you know, some people are considered more important by legislation, by social codes, you know, et cetera. And inequality is the output. It's the difference in mm-hmm. what happens to people because of that. So, you know, when you think about gender, you think of the glass ceiling, this idea that women can only advance so far in their careers, and then they hit an artificial ceiling. Or when you think about race, right, this idea that black men are disproportionately more likely to be shot by a police officer than a white man and things like this. And so that to me is, is where the difference between stratification and inequality lay. It's sort of in the, in that input output dynamic, if you will. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, Okay. So in your career, as you see, you know, you envision it, what do you see the relationship being to the MMT project to its academic concepts and to the people involved in it, like the legal people and the academic people. And yeah, so I'm super, I'm super excited about MMT. I think it's really important. I think it's 
even more important for it to branch out and be an even more truly interdisciplinary field than it currently is. I think right now MMT has a lot of economists and MMT has a lot of law scholars and these are great things and these are already more interdisciplinary than classic like economists are. I think getting into so for me as a someone who's going to school well I guess someone who's in a sociology program, looking at the social ills that are caused by economic policies. I think there's some acknowledgement of that already in MMT, especially in sort of like leftist MMT circles, which is just like, look, all of these terrible things are going on and we could just fix them if you, you know, subscribe to this framework that we could, you know, adopt policies that would fix all of our inequality. And while I think there's some truth to that, I think MMT has some amazing potential for reducing inequality. I think having a more interdisciplinary approach, listening to more black scholars who are saying, you know, like, hey, there's more to it than just the policies. Like, you also have people's attitudes you have the way people were socialized like it's not it's going to take a couple generations for people to sort of adjust their mindset to this new order like it's not something that happens overnight and so that's where I see myself using MT is sort of coming at it from uh, an interdisciplinary approach and saying like I'm seeing you know, this effect happening, my most recent research being the interaction between student loan debt and race on homeownership outcomes, right? Mm. So saying like, we know that race impacts homeownership outcomes because of discrimination across all of the stages of the housing exchange. We know that student loans impact homeownership as young people are basically taking on a mortgage to go to school, leaving them Mm -hmm. unable to take on a mortgage to own a home. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know that student loan debt burdens are different based on race. So what is the, what is the interaction here between race and student loans and homeownership? And then being able to take MMT and saying, well, here's what we can measure the impact of these things being. Could we use this framework to create policy that begins to address some of these problems? And I don't want to say that we'll solve these problems because I think, you know, there's not a silver bullet. There's not some magic equation or formula or function that can just like fix the inequality because, I mean, going back to that inequality versus stratification, you can address the outcome, but until you fix the input, you're going to just be bailing water. You know, does that make sense? Like, sure. You have to stop bailing water at some point to plug the hole in the boat. Redistribution (laughs) Um, versus redistribution. Exactly. So that's where I see NMT being useful to myself as an academic and scholar in my career going forward. Wow. Also, I would like to add, with a grain of salt, I literally am in my first week of my graduate program. So the next five years are like uh, 
a Mario set of question blocks and I just have to go like smack my head into some bricks until I figure out where I'm going. Um, but, but for as, as far as I know right now, like, <laughs> hopefully a mushroom will come out of one of them. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, are you going to take some MMT classes? I'm hoping that I can take some interdisciplinary coursework while I'm here. I basically have two years of actual coursework. And then the last three years are basically teaching and writing until I finish my dissertation. Wow, five years seems pretty fast. Five years is fast. And as someone who's coming straight from undergrad, like I, not a lot of people do that. Most people uh, finish their undergrad and they go work for a few years and get some experience and figure out what they want to do and then go back to grad school. But I was like, yeah, if I stop doing academia, I don't know if I'll ever go back. So let me just get it all out of the way Hmm. and call that a day. But um, yeah, Stephanie is teaching in the economics and public policy college at Stony Brook and part of my part of my program is you know they encourage us to take classes interdisciplinarily because we're sociologists so it's important to get perspectives and I'm hoping you know that at some point I'll be able to take a class with her and that but it's very hard to predict what's going on especially with how COVID is impacting schools and all sorts of stuff right um, what was I going to say? Oh, I'll hold on a second before until... Did MMT have any influence on your choosing this particular career? Like if you didn't know MMT, would you have chosen any kind of, or either a different flavor of your current career or a different career total? You know, it's hard. That's a hard question for me to answer. Just because I've had so many different career goals in the last 10 years. I mean, 10 years ago, I was convinced that I would be in culinary school. I would be opening my own bakery. Like, that is all I wanted to do. An Um, MMT-aware baker. And there you go. Just creating (laughs) some cookies with icing that says taxes don't fund spending. With economic accuracy, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it. But... And I've taken such a a weird pivot going from business school to sociology, but not really completely divorcing myself from economics. I think what I have really wanted to do for a long time was teach. And I think I would have taught regardless. I might have just settled for being a middle school teacher or something. Not settled for, like, I have a lot of respect for middle school teachers. Middle schoolers are mean, and I don't think I could do that, like, just as a person. Um, But I think taking that one macro class with BJ, I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to teach college classes. And the way to do that is to go get my doctorate. And so that's led me to where I am now. It's just, instead of teaching business classes like marketing or finance or accounting or something equally sort of soul draining, I can do sociology and that lets me study the same concepts, but enjoy it. That's great. Um, Okay. Well, why don't we, why don't we, uh, could you talk a little bit? I mean, some big things have happened to you recently. You've you've moved. I mean, I mean, 
Okay. I have a, I have a few questions. Like, you know, you just got married. You yes. just moved from one side of the country to the other. And apparently you drove back and forth repeatedly. I guess yes. your now husband lived, lived in New York originally. No. So it's such a weird, like, I don't even, God, there's no way that I could have predicted this. If 12 months ago, you told me like, Hey, in 12 months, you're going to be living in New York with a Twitter famous celebrity, leftist celebrity, <laughs> Uh, going to grad school and you'll be married, I would have been like, um, no, like, <laughs> there's no way that any of that is true. Um, well, where, well, let's start from the, well, let's start from where did you meet your current husband? So I met my husband at, we actually, we've been together for five years. I just wasn't really like, we've known that we were going to get married for a long time. We just, it was just a matter of when. And so he actually, he proposed in the in January of 2019 and we started planning a wedding and then COVID hit and upturned all of our plans. But at that point, Oh yeah. Corona wedding. It was like, it, it, it truly was. Um, so I got to have the very unique experience of holding a wedding over zoom, uh, mm. which really not, I would not, on, not everything you wanted on my worst enemy. <laughs> <laughs> well, how many people um, were actually there? Just my, just our family. So my parents, Joe's parents, our siblings, and our photographer. And my mom mm. is a pastor, um, mm. and she graciously agreed to marry us. And wow. I am eternally grateful because being, you know, the efficient at your own child's wedding is like not what mother of the brides, mothers of the bride usually do. So she was an absolute angel and doing that for us. Um, mm, that's great. But yeah, no, I saw a picture of your father like built something big oh, for your wedding. My dad built a ton of big things for my wedding. He, I, it's weird. My, my mom's been married twice. So I have two older siblings and my eldest sister is turning 34 and she's married and lives in Amsterdam and my older brother's third. Like they're sort of like out of the house already, but I am my dad's first kid to sort of like leave the nest if you will so mm. my mom was like yeah whatever we're so excited for you you're going to new york like it's such a big deal and my dad was you know couldn't talk to me about it without crying like mm. oh my god you're leaving and i was like if you start crying i'm gonna start crying like, <laughs> like it was this whole thing but yeah so my parents went hog wild for the wedding because mm. we were getting married in their backyard so they were like it's gonna be perfect my dad built an entire pergola for us to have the ceremony in wow. and then he also so my new husband is a photographer and my dad has also done photography for most of his life and they were so excited they built brendan barry is is a photographer who builds cameras out of whatever a shipping container a 55 gallon drum a stuffed animal like whatever like you name it he'll make a camera out of it and so mm. my dad and joe worked together and built a shed camera which was absolutely incredible and so they took some great exposures of literally full size like head to foot printed on like 18 by 24 paper mm. um taken with this camera made out of two by fours and plywood and it was just absolutely incredible but yeah so uh i originally met joe five years ago now at church youth group which is kind of a trip like <laughs> to think about now um and we dated 
through high school and college and did long distance for two years while he finished his undergrad degree at Western Washington University um, up in Bellingham, Washington. And I did mine, obviously, in DePaul in Chicago. And so this spring, he came to visit me for spring break, as we had done. And what happened was COVID hit while he was there, and all of our flights got canceled. Oh, wow. And so he ended up just stuck in Chicago for three months for the Mm. entirety of our spring quarter, which, you know, not what you expect, but not something you can control. Like, whatever, I'm not going to, literally, like, I'm not going to complain about it. And so we were both in Chicago. So once the end of the school year hit, we loaded up a minivan uh, with all of my stuff from my apartment in Chicago and our new cat, drove to Seattle, unloaded our stuff, immediately like packed our u-haul because we knew we were moving to new york we just weren't sure when um so we packed up a u-haul drove a u-haul from seattle to new york drove a nissan versa from new york back to seattle again (laughs) got married and then loaded up my Prius C with the rest of our stuff and the cat and drove from seattle to new york again so all in all We did it in about four days. So it was averaging about 900 miles a day. Whoa. Which is like doable. You just get up at 4.30, get on the road by 5, and then you get to wherever you're going at 6 or 7.30, depending on how I'm afraid to ask how fast you're driving. You know, the speed limit. (laughs) Most of the time, the the U-Haul van has a limit on the speedometer and doesn't let you go faster than 75. Really? Which is fine for most states, except in Montana and North Dakota, where the speed limit is 80 miles an hour and you're getting passed by semi-trucks, like, Mm. because you're going slow. Mm. Um, But yeah, so four days across the country, three and a half times, we ended up driving about 11,000 miles this summer, which makes (laughs) me feel terrible about my, like, carbon emissions. (laughs) But... uh, (laughs) But, well, like, what are you going to do? <laughs> how, how, so, I mean, what did you – how in the world did you keep your sanity with all of that driving? With, you were with him well, on all three trips, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Well, we basically – literally in my wedding vows, I was like, yeah, I don't know if there's anyone else who I would have been able to survive, like, 15 days straight in the car with. Like, mm. uh, if we didn't – if we weren't sure about getting married before we left with, on our trips this summer, like, we sure as hell are now. But um, – mm. I have a magic ability to just pass out. Like I do my, you know, four-hour shift driving, and then, yes, as a passenger, I should clarify. I do my four-hour <laughs> shift driving. I climb over in the passenger seat, and I just go to sleep. Hmm. Or on one of the trips, I was frantically writing and <laughs> presenting my slide decks for the ASA, mm. uh, getting all my research ready to go. So I, wow. you know, had something to present, which works, you know, get a cell phone hotspot and log on to Google Drive. You know, it's not so bad. I actually don't mind driving that much. So it wasn't, it wasn't too much of a stretch for me. I think by the last time when we drove just this past week from Seattle to New York again, I was like, okay, like now I'm done. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like now, like finally I've reached the end of my well, thank patience you for are done, yeah. bad drivers. Yeah. 
So, but we're here, we're settled into our apartment in Queens, um, in Jackson Heights. We were very fortunate when we were first starting to look for an apartment. Uh, I was talking to Nathan Tankus and he was like, well, Noah and I were just about to plan a move anyways. Like it wouldn't be that much of a stretch for us to just rent an apartment together. And I was like, wait, are you, are you serious? Like, <laughs> like, like, uh, are you sure? Um, and so here we are, we have a three bedroom in Jackson Heights and we share an office, which is really great. And it's, it's, I'm as, as settled as I'm going to be for a while, I think, until I, you know, get some shelves to organize my stuff onto. I'm just living, living in a land of boxes for the moment. Wow. That's quite a story. Wow. Well, good luck to you. And what is, uh, what's your husband's name? Joe. What is, what is Joe doing in New York? Joe is, uh, building things for us right now. He's a very handy person. He installed all of our AC units today. Um, Currently job hunting. He's a photographer by training. So he's looking at, he has an interview, I think with Life Touch Portraits, the school picture people, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of confusing because as far as I'm concerned, everybody should be on school, like at school online this, this semester, this year. So job hunting, helping us unpack. I literally got here Saturday. My first day of class is Monday, so I didn't have a lot of time to, like, do anything before. Now I'm, you know, doing readings and whatever. So he's been really great about taking care of around the apartment things, finding parking for our car, like, all of the logistic things that can be overwhelming. Um, That's great. That's great. Um, How, actually, speaking of school, uh, what is like how much is in person at Stony Brook right now? So I currently have nothing in person that I need to do. Um, I technically have an office on campus that I could go to if I wanted to, Hmm. but all of my classes are online. Two of them are synchronous. One of them is asynchronous and that like totally works for me. It's weird being a first year grad school student and not like, seeing people or like socializing with people um stony brook was planning on going back to school in person through basically the end of july and so i signed a lease at the beginning of july for july 15th because as far as i knew they were going back to school in person and after i had signed my lease and paid two months rent and moved all my stuff here they were like oh actually we're just going to do stuff online. And I was like, Mm. okay, cool. I guess I'm moving to New York. And actually it's all for the best. I get to establish my New York and state residency sooner without having to fill out as much paperwork. And Joe does as well. He wants to um, go to grad school as well and do an MFA program. So it's, you know, better for him to be able to get in-state tuition if we move here sooner than later. But yeah, ultimately a little frustrating but that's okay. We're here. <laughs> Nothing to change. Well, hopefully it'll end at some point. Actually, that's the one the one benefit I could possibly think of of a Biden presidency is that the we'll go back to the system that gave us Trump, but at least I think the pandemic will end quicker. It's the only yes. positive I can think of. Yeah, I agree. And that is something I've had a lot of, I've had a hard time with 
obviously you're friends with me on Facebook, so you see a lot of the posts on my wall. Um, yeah, okay. Well, if you want to say, sure. Well, I just, um, I was the kid in high school who, like, yeah, I made friends, but mostly I made friends with my friends' parents. Like, <laughs> I sort of, like, I sort of just, like, collected people's parents. Like, I was everyone's parents' favorite friend, you know? And so my... My Facebook and my Twitter personalities are very different. My Facebook is very much an older cohort of people. I'm in like a weird micro generation between millennials and Gen Z. Like I'm, I'm too young to be a millennial, but I'm too old to have TikTok downloaded. So, uh, <laughs> like, like I'm in this weird phase, and so uh, most of my friends are, you know, millennials are older. And so a lot of what I would consider very basic, like, political facts, like, mm -mm, racism is real, (laughs) or we have a policing problem in the U.S., like, are very radical opinions for my Facebook feed. And so... Well, yeah, actually, I, yeah, so you're, no. I mean, you're saying being a Christian, right? I mean, that I know that's a big yeah. part of your life, and you that's, just you mentioned, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, that is a big part of my, a lot of my, um, my faith and my politics are definitely, like, linked. I don't think I could separate those two things apart. I think my faith really informs the way that I think about human beings and, and the way that I think the way that I value people, in my opinion, every single person is, you know, has dignity and has an inherent value because they are a human being. And I personally think that I've been called to live into my faith by loving other people the way that Christ loved us, which was unconditionally. And that informs my politics, right? Like, I think everyone has a right to have their basic needs met. I think everyone has a right to access clean water and food and shelter and clothing. And at this and point, to not be shot. And, to, and to not be killed in the streets for just existing and to be able to have reliable employment. Like, I think all of these things they don't necessarily have to be tied to any faith tradition. I think you can believe that humans deserve these things without tying it to any sort of religion or, or moral code. But for me, they are, they are linked. Um, you have a, a very, so, you have a fun, uh, I won't use the word troll, but you have a fun, uh, <laughs> very conservative person who, you know, is basically, my life is fine. We don't need this stuff. My life is fine. And he yes. also, and he's like, you know, I, I, the one thing that stuck out with me with this, what he said, I don't trust colleges and professors because they yeah. haven't lived in the real world. It's like, and it reminds me of the argument of like free market versus government. It's like John Harvey puts it is that the free market is a tool mm-hmm. and it's a tool that's good for some things and it's bad for other things. And it's like, a, it's like, you know, I like hammers, but unfortunately I have to saw, I have to cut something with it, you know, cleanly cut something. So unfortunately I can't do it because the only tool that works is a hammer. And so he's mm-hmm. saying, you know, I don't trust colleges and professors because they haven't lived in the real world. It's like, so they're not good for certain things that relate to like real world experience kind of stuff, but clearly they are good for some other things, you know? So he's, right. he's a, he's sort of a, it seems to be a regular presence in your. Yes. In my, in my comment section. Um, 
and that's the thing with my Facebook feed is it's half like over 40 white wealthy people where I lived in Washington was one of the wealthiest zip codes in the country. Um, and so just by nature of being around those people, Sammamish, Washington, you can look it up. It has the highest amount of children per capita, like the safest, the safest county in Washington state every year for 15 years or whatever the heck, I don't know. And so a lot of the people that I know who fit that demographic are people that I met at church. And so they're extremely conservative Christian people. And that's their worldview. They, they live in a bubble of extremely wealthy people. Um, and they're not exposed to the daily suffering of regular working class people. They, these are families that are double income, three kids, you know, they make $250,000 a year, but because they're not millionaires, they don't consider themselves Ah, wealthy. Yeah. Uh, They consider themselves working class people. They're not desperate for a job or a house or an education or healthcare, but they feel free to comment on how we should not be providing jobs and healthcare and whatever. Yes. Yes. My, my favorite experience that sums up that entire, the last, the five years of living that I did there was working at a coffee shop and realizing that the way that I was treated by my customers, which, you know, was like a good 40, 60 of like 40% of my customers were complete assholes and 60% of them were just nice enough. But I realized that those people that were being so rude and, and mean to me were, it's not because they were rude people. They just like, they've never worked in customer service. Like, They've never had to work a retail job. They went straight from high school to college to working as a, you know, a big air quotes professional. Like they never really had that experience. So they don't know how much it sucks when someone is like, why should I give you a check? Like you get paid <laughs> like the, right, those yeah. kinds of attitudes. Um, yeah, sure. And, and I, so. I'll say though, I'll say though that the, you know, I'm sure it was, you know, when they first walked in the door and they were first mean to you, that maybe it was just unawareness and, you know, their life experience, just whatever they can't identify with you. But at some point, I'm sorry, that changes, that changes to if you so aggressively still keep ignorant of, you know, the life experiences of those, you know, that you choose to stay mean at some point that turn that changes to active, you know, it's the same thing. 100%. like with. It's same thing with like politicians, you know, maybe they don't really understand how the economy works, but I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. At some point it changes at some, and it's same like, thing. That's same, your job. <laughs> right. And it's the same thing with uh, the last example is the same thing that I always think of is people who watch MSNBC, you know, mm-hmm. centrists and they, you know, and they say that they're, you know, I watch the news all the time, but that news is news about of, by, and for the rich. And it doesn't show suffering. Right. It doesn't show poverty. It doesn't show any poor right. people. It doesn't investigate poor people, but yet they use that as the excuse of, you know, we don't need Medicare for all, for instance, because I don't see that on my news. And at some right. point that ignorance turns to active to protect your own privilege. And yes. it's, you know, it's a very gray transition, but yeah. No, I fully agree. And it's such a weird, like, um, I've always, I've always been very fortunate. Uh, my parents were liberals growing up. 
uh, even when we lived in Montana and everyone was a, a super hardcore Republican, they never, hmm. they intentionally did not expose me to their political views so that I would not literally get bullied on the playground, like dumb, <laughs> dumb like that. Um, for example, I was in, Obama got elected in 2008, right? So I was nine years old, mm. um, which meant I was in like, I don't know, like third or fourth grade, something around about there. And being a kid in an election year is just <laughs> such a surreal experience because everyone around you is just parroting the political views of their parents. <laughs> and no one really knows what anything means. Like what nine-year-old actually has any sort of political consciousness? You know what I mean? Like they're just repeating what they hear. Not the a nine-year-old like so, Bernie a lot. <laughs> you know what? I'm so proud. I was not that politically aware as a small child. Um, but, and my parents like definitely voted for Obama. Like they, there's no doubt about that. But when I asked them, who did you vote for? They wouldn't tell me like at the time because they knew that if I went to school and was like, oh, well, my parents voted for Obama because that's what kids do. Like I wouldn't have had any friends because that's just, that was the atmosphere at the very small private Christian school that I went mm. to. Oh, um, okay. Christian school on top of that. Yeah. Not just conservative. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, um, but they've always, uh, been very intentional about allowing me to sort of form my own opinions um, and respecting where I'm coming from and listening to my experiences and sort of validating validating my experiences and so when I would come home from my shifts at the coffee shop and be like wow like people were really like shitheads to me today and they were like wow that really sucks I'm sorry and didn't try to be like oh well did you try like being nice or whatever you know like those sort of like put it back to you know if you just change your perspective everything it will be different kind of thing like and so that sort of acknowledgement right exactly they would just sort of listen and that sort of acknowledgement of like yeah like what you're experiencing is what's happening and that's valid like really helped me when I got to school I think being able to be like wait, like these economists are saying that this is true, but I'm like looking at the world around me and like, that's just not happening. Like, <laughs> like I just, like I was able to recognize when things didn't really line up or when, you know, like the logical disconnect in different things. I think was easier for me to see because I had had those experiences of my parents being like, yeah, no, like that makes sense. Like Mm. trust your gut, trust your instinct, you know, your intuition is there for a reason. You should listen to it. Um, Yeah. Well, that's cool. Okay. Um, All right. So let me ask you a final question before we switch subjects. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, your parents seem to be rather enlightened. I mean, just just from the feeling that I'm getting as you're talking, and and the tweet from I saw from your father saying he's reading the deficit <laughs> myth, which is really yes. cool. So uh, I'm curious of how your influence of you know how did you influence them? I mean, and part of that is MMT, but how did you influence mm-hmm. them? And you know, they heard of MMT through you, I would imagine, or you know, just yeah. Well, my mom is in her sixties. My dad is in his late 40s. Wow. So, 
different generation. Like they, they're from different generations. My mom is a typical like hashtag boomer, but in the best ways. She's a chaplain. She works in the NICU unit in hospitals in Seattle with parents and families who are grieving the loss of their infants. Um, wow, a chaplain in a hospital. Yes. Yeah, she does a lot of she does spiritual care, so lots of emotions, lots wow. of she she really sees like the worst of what's happening in the hospital. Mm. And that I think has informed a lot of her opinions about politics, etc. My dad is a, you know, old is he now? 48-year-old software engineer at Microsoft, you know, he's just wow. uh that's probably not his official title. I'm so terrible at like remembering what the official names are. They they really don't mean anything to me. He just does cool stuff with computers, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> that's um, official enough. Which is, you know. And so but my dad has always been super super open with me about all kinds of things like I very much remember and I don't know he's gonna listen to this and he's probably not gonna remember the story but I very much remember being young and folding laundry on my parents bed and I asked him about like what's a gay person like I had like was like had never experienced this before and I remember him just being very nonchalant and like you know how like mom and I love each other like sometimes boys can like boys and girls can like girls and that was it and that was the whole conversation that we just kept I was like okay and we just kept folding laundry and like that's been my whole experience with my family they're very they're very classic liberals well, and so in, in a, in a more, good liberal way, not a not in a, a good in a good liberal way. I don't know. I personally would argue that that doesn't exist at the current moment. No offense to my parents as someone who has become a lot more radicalized, I think, in the last, I don't know, 12 to 18 months um, watching as current events unfold and seeing how things are happening and what's going on. Like you said, the election of Joe Biden doesn't doesn't move us forward. It takes us back to where we were pre-Trump, which you know got us Trump. So like I don't know what we're <laughs> what we're expecting there. But that's that's been a push and pull in in my relationship with my parents. Definitely, my mom absolutely stands Kamala Harris. She just, she loves Kamala. She's all about women, female empowerment and how awesome all right, so is I'll it? T- I'll take like back a- about, I'll take back about 15% of my, your parents being enlightened. <laughs> um, <she's, laughs> no offense, yeah. no offense I mean, guys. No, no <laughs> taken on behalf of my parents. She, she's, she's like, it's so cool that a black woman has been, you know, the, is the VP nominee and she's so outspoken against Trump in her everyday life, just like we have to do everything we can to keep Trump from being reelected. And that's very much my, I think both my parents' mindsets at this point in time. And I'm of the same opinion. I think we need to do whatever we can to keep Trump from getting back in office. Obviously people will die if Trump is reelected. However, I also acknowledge that 
people will die if Biden is elected. I don't like slightly. Less. I don't know how we got. Yeah, I don't know how we got to 2020 and the two best people to be to hold the office of the presidency are two old white men. Like, I just don't, <laughs> I'm just not sure how that's where we are, but, um, they, you know, they both vote in solid, in a solid blue state. They're registered to vote in Washington. And so am I at the current moment. I haven't updated my stuff to New York. So to me, it's like, well, you know, you're in a solid blue state. So vote third party. Like, like, do, do something. Don't just sit along, sit and like, go with the flow. I think it's, it's really important to me to know, like, I don't think abstaining from voting is a good protest move. Like, I think we need to mobilize as many people as we can and young people especially to like, get out and vote. I just think if you're not in a swing state, like if you're in a solid blue state, like Washington, it doesn't hurt anyone to vote third party, like vote green, vote. I don't like, I, I just have a personal vendetta against libertarians, but that's, Mm -hmm. that's just an aside, Mm -hmm. write in someone's name, you know, vote down ballot, elect progressives, like do what you need to do. But just voting for Biden because he's not Trump, it just doesn't seem super politically motivating. Like, I think there are real things that are happening. People are suffering. People are dying. Like, it's a, it's something I've seen secondhand through my mom's time in the hospital. Like, she's there as people are dying of COVID, like, providing mm. spiritual care. Like, Oh, wow. Just just thinking that she's exposed. She's, you know, she's in a dangerous position. With yeah, a, with she's totally, like, she's over 60, has a compromised immune system. Like, it's been a, it's been a time of great anxiety for, for wow. myself and my family. But, you know, she's an essential worker, and she really cares about what she's doing, and she goes and, and, and provides spiritual care. And so for me, hearing these stories of, like, People are dying, and if they don't die, they're left with lifelong health conditions and hospital bills that will literally bankrupt them. Like, our existing order of society, the way that we've, this this thing that we've created where the mega rich get to just do whatever they want and the rest of us just try to survive, like, it can't continue. Like, in a pandemic, like, people are going to die if we don't do anything about it. You know, it's not the wealthy people who are going to die. They can afford the tests and they can afford the health care. It's working-class people. Yeah, and to isolate, exactly. They can afford to not go to work. They can afford to, you know, take a 12-month leave of absence, whatever. It's working, it's poor and working-class people who will bear the brunt of the economic and health consequences of the pandemic and what's going to happen when we're left without a working class you know what i mean like our economic structure relies so heavily on tons of people working for poverty wages to enrich the owners of corporations like something has to change and i don't know what it is but there's there's got to be something big. And I just feel like Joe Biden is not something big. He's the status quo. And the status quo is not going to fix 
where we are. And it's not, or not just, where we're it's going. not just not going to fix it. It's going to make it worse. It's just not quite Agreed. as high speed as Trump. Um, Agreed. Um, okay, great. Uh, all right. Well, why don't we do a drastic change of subject if, if you don't yeah. mind? Um, okay. So I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you about anxiety, anxiety yeah. and, and hooking that in. I think it's correct to say, you didn't say I was wrong when I wrote you. <laughs> I think it's correct to say that <laughs> both of us, <laughs> that both of us, like for me, MNT is sort of my lens of truth. Like for some mm-hmm. people it's religion and maybe Christianity is some, some part of that for you. Like everybody has mm-hmm. a tool that they use to find the meaning of life. And yeah. for me, it's MMT. I mean, it really is mm-hmm. um, almost mm-hmm. exclusive, almost exclusively or, or, you know, much of it anyway. So yeah. I think that that's largely too for you. I'm sure Christianity and maybe something else is for you, but mm-hmm. to frame the conversation around that. So, you know, I, I will tell my story. I'd like to wait till maybe like a half hour something to tell my to tell my story i'd like to mm-hmm. i don't even know exactly where you feel like going with that but I'm on the
Hannah received a decidedly non-MMT undergraduate degree in business from DePaul University in Chicago. In September of 2019, she impulsively flew out to Long Island, New York in order to attend the MMT conference at Stony Brook University. Despite knowing no one, she ended up being selected as a last-minute replacement to moderate a conference panel. She and her husband now share an apartment with MMTer Nathan Tenkus in Queens, New York, and she has just begun an MMT-informed sociology PhD program at Stony Brook. Her hope is to further expand the interdisciplinary reach of the MMT project, which currently centers around law. Her primary interest, however, is the racial wealth divide in the United States, and more broadly, stratification and inequality. Stratification being the decisions and actions that cause and result in inequality. Hannah describes how she got here from there through a Zoom wedding in her home state of Washington, Zoom church in Chicago, and 11,000 miles of driving from Washington to New York to Washington to New York in order to attend a Zoom PhD. In part two, we drastically switch subjects to